All right, champs, let's continue our informal look into the world of business, the economy, real estate, the Federal Reserve, and all these other global macro issues which affect us directly in our pocketbook. Tonight, we're going to be looking at that crazy deal China signed without us. We're going to look at this continued retail Armageddon. What does it mean? Are there truly long-term consequences in this or are we going to bounce back? We're going to look at DoorDash and its IPO. We're going to look at CPI numbers and we're going to have a quick look at the Federal Reserve. So that's our packet for today. Let's get this episode on the road. So China basically signs this huge trade deal. They've got 14 countries in it. And this entire scenario is ex-US. That means that we're not involved in it. So what caught my attention and what I want you to kind of look at is that this idea that analysts are expecting that the economic benefits of this trade deal are going to take years to materialize. So in a way, what our US analysts and perhaps other global banking analysts are saying is that, you know what, F this. We don't need to worry about it because it's going to take many years before all of this gets organized and the actual flow of trade and money continues. So I think that looking at it from this idea that, hey, there are no immediate benefits so we can kind of F it, I don't think that makes a lot of sense. Because what's happening here is, of course, China has this huge, let's just call it multi-year, multi-decade plan called the Belt and Road Initiative. This thing is a serious trade block, a serious economic zone that China wants to set up. And once again, if things aren't going well, if things aren't negotiated well, China aims to make this without us, ex-US. This Belt and Road Initiative will have 4.6 billion people in its circumference. That's crazy. If our population even hits 8 billion in the coming decade or so, that's more than 50% of the globe will be living within the circumference of the Belt and Trade Initiative. So it's important that our companies, it's important that our manufacturing, it's important that our technology kind of trickles through that system. $29 trillion is going to be the GDP of all the various countries there combined. So America's GDP is roughly $20 trillion a year. Let's get the exact number. And that's roughly $20.54 trillion. And over here, we see that it's $29 trillion in aggregate. That's the combined GDP of all the countries combined. So what that should quickly get you to think about is that these aggregate countries are going to exceed America's GDP. That's the first point. But the more important point is that these countries are still small. They're growing. So as their economies improve, as their economies expand, this collective GDP expands. And then suddenly we're facing a system where perhaps it's $50 trillion of combined GDP versus America's 20, 21, 22 trillion dollars. So America then, from that point of view, will be the one who is disenfranchised. This is what America is going to miss out on because now through this road and belt initiative, stuff can move from China all the way to say Russia without friction from the oceans, without friction from here and there, without friction from other countries. And this allows things to move cheaper. Therefore, if things are moving cheaper, manufacturing continues to remain strong in China. So this idea that we've missed out on this trade deal today and we shouldn't worry too much about it has some ring of truth to it because these monies aren't going to be realized soon. But what this is ultimately doing, of course, is that it's continuing to strengthen 
China and its multi-decade long-term plan. And we as Americans, we as a nation, I think are not looking at this problem through a much more longer time horizon. And that's something that needs to be done. Okay, so another store is now going bankrupt. We got Francesca. They've got around 140 shops. You know, in the larger scheme of things, there's not that many stores. But in aggregate, when we look at all of these things, we've got so many stores closing, GNC, and this is like this crazy huge list, JCPenney. It's an incredible amount of stores and retail space that has opened up due to the pandemic. Well, what's the deal now? The deal here is that generally when these stores close down, they sublease the space out to local players. And then those guys, you know, basically get those mattress stores and all these other smaller players coming in. And they usually get to rent that space at a discount. Well, what's happening now is that a lot of these guys who were the leaseholders to these buildings, they themselves had trenched out their mortgages. So these asset-backed securities, these ABSs, took a bunch of mortgages, combined them together as one, and they sold it off to the secondary market. Now, here's the problem. Generally, the guy who owns the land or the store says, you know what, I'm going to sublease this out and I'll take a loss. I'll, instead of say selling for $10,000 a month, I'll do this for 6400 or maybe 5000 a month, depending on what he feels. The problem is that when these loans have been trenched out in these ABSs, the guy who owns the land cannot offer me a deal. He basically has to say, I can give you this empty space, but I need around the same about money that I was charging this big national retailer. Well, what's going to happen there? Of course, you and I, or these smaller players will not be able to afford these mega rents. And this itself is going to create a feedback loop where more and more of these stores are going to remain vacant for a lot longer. So the kicker here is that these ABSs are preventing a lot of stores from renegotiating with other players to move into these empty vacant spaces. This itself is going to affect the CRE quite a bit and we're gonna continue watching. All right, the next one is DoorDash, they filed their S1. You can kind of get a very deep look into their finances, see how much money they're making and on and on. But let's talk about this in a much more macro level. All right. That's at the point here at Global Macro. So I've got them saying that DoorDash is valued at $16 billion. That's the internal valuation that they've made. And upon that valuation, they're raising more and more money. Fine. The point here is that do we continue buying stuff from DoorDash, from Uber Eats and all these other players? Or are we going to find that these local stores are going to say, you know what, it is not worth to me to continue paying these third party vendors and I'm going to hire a bunch of people and do this myself. As more and more people remain unemployed for the long duration, these stores, these local coffee shops, these local restaurants, these local, you know, clothing stores, whatever you want to look at, will find that labor is cheaper. They're going to find that they're able to hire people and then those people are willing to work at this discounted rate to do the deliveries. So that's a kind of macro risk within this DoorDash at home eat sector. So what caught my attention here was this fact that Momofuku joins Gold Belly and they want to essentially deliver comfort food. This I think is an interesting point I hadn't considered earlier and I thought we'd talk about it. So the idea is that I can call anyone and they'll deliver exciting foods to me. Does this then make me and my palate more adventurous? Does it mean that I'm now spending more discretionary dollars on food? 
Whereas before I was going out to the mall and buying things. Now I'm saying I'm not doing that. I'm stuck in another lockdown. So what am I going to do? Well, what I'm going to do is pick up that app and I'm going to order me some exciting food. And here is a interesting, let's just call it a glimmer within this home delivery sector that stores and restaurants that were not expected to kind of sell stuff because they traditionally never did it are moving to this online delivery segment and they're finding success. To me, that's fascinating because then the question then becomes, how far does it go? And because this is capitalism, this will get to its pretty extreme. So what are we going to find? Are we going to find, you know, guys and gals who are delivering to us expensive champagnes? Are we going to find that foods from India, Sri Lanka, you know, they're coming to our house at a much more cheaper price point than they were before. So let's pivot off Momofuku and all these home delivery guys and let's look at CPI because within the CPI, we get to see the realities of what DoorDash and Momofuku are actually saying. So here is a chart. It's looking at a 20 year in aggregate of our consumer prices. Things go up, things go down. This little doop de doop here, all the way from here down to here, this was that great credit crisis of 2007 and 8. And then we recover and yada yada, and boom, here we go. January of 2020, things look horrible, the markets crash, everything goes down, and CPI falls because companies aren't able to sell stuff, so the prices of things go down. Simple enough. So let's look at this. Here I've pulled up. This is on the BLS's website, the Bureau of Labor and Statistics. Here is the food derivation. And check this out. So as the CPI is falling, CPI for food is going up. That makes sense. It's taking more resources, more logistics to acquire these foods within the stores and so forth. That's exciting. And then when we look at food away from home, that's our restaurants, aren't they? Look at this. There's an aggregate jump here, 3.9% in last month alone. So this is showing you that Momofuku and DoorDash are kind of arguing their equation the correct way. They're saying that the consumer is spending money and is willing to spend money on more things that are now food based than they were other. So let's look at this alcoholic beverages. Not too hot. Let me turn all of this down and let's look at apparel. So what do we see here? We see this dramatic collapse and things are not back to normal because we're not buying that many clothes. So now, now what I'm looking at here is all items, less food and energy X. That means without. So they're looking at all the items and they're not including food to energy costs, food and energy costs. Even the Federal Reserve looks at it at a very highly volatile state. What they're saying is prices go up and down so much. So we're not really interested in that number on a month to month basis. And it kind of makes sense because sometimes if the price of oil suddenly skyrockets because something happened in the Middle East or one of our shale producers wasn't able to make things, what happens? The price of oil rises. We're paying more at the gas pump. But once that problem gets fixed, boom, it's gone. Prices fall back the next month. So that's why they remove these highly volatile structures from this measurement index. And here we are. We've seen a somewhat reduced cost for everything. And then we have a little bit slight bang up here post recovery, so to speak. So food, food at home, food away from home, and then combine that with apparel and new vehicles. And we are seeing that the winner here is food at home 
So what this is basically showing us that the prices, the CPI, the consumer price index is measuring and saying that food is becoming more and more expensive for us. Food away from home is becoming more and more expensive for us. And here is the pivot in which Momofuku, DoorDash and all these other players seem to be capitalizing on. All right, the next new friend you're going to make is Fred. Fred lives within the Federal Reserve's website, Federal Reserve Economic Data. This is a great site. They cover so many different data points and they let you plot them and you kind of kind of look at them. You can model things and kind of see how is the economy responding to the various things that are happening in it. Makes a lot of sense. So we're going to be using this site a lot in our global macro studies. And I want you to kind of start getting accustomed to it. Look at an example and see how this thing works because we're going to be using this a lot. So I've pulled up the total non-farm payrolls and this thing is going all the way back there. We don't need to do that. Let's just kind of scatter this up here. So 2012 onwards and then here we are, boom. This is the lockdown. This is the great pandemic recession and here we are. So what's interesting here now is that you can plot this data against any of the other things. You could plot it against a CPI number. You could plot it against employment in your particular area, your particular zip code. You could plot it against GDPs of countries here, of course, in America, or the GDPs of, say, the European Union as a whole, or Japan or China, and on and on. So we're going to be using Fred a lot, and I just wanted to make the introductions today. All right, gang, so that's kind of the end of today's episode. This is episode one, season one, so there are going to be hiccups. We're going to get better at this. And what I ultimately want to do is make this a safe place for us to look at global macro, and I want us to make it into a much more informal place so that we can learn and that we don't have to pretend like we're these big anchors at CNBC or Bloomberg. Our goal here is to get to the information and make sense of the business news and basically the tagline here is business news that you can use so hopefully we all leave smarter that's it for today i'll see you next time cheers